Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We're so glad that you're joining us. We've got a great conversation ahead. Remember that you can always catch the Bridge Builder Show every week on the radio, on your favorite podcast app, and now on our weekly YouTube show as well. So if you ever do miss an episode, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are you speaking with this week? Well, we're going to try to build bridges between economics and ethics and uh, economic science and theology. We'll be speaking with Dr. Mary Hirschfeld, professor of economics and theology at Villanova University and author of the very fine book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy. That's a great uh, subtitle of the book, Toward a Humane Economy. What really makes an economy humane or inhumane? It, it helps me to understand that, yes, the church would have something to say on the economy. It's not just about numbers. It's about how it impacts people, too. So I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Remember, everyone, if you ever have an idea for a show topic, what do you want us to be talking about? What questions do you have? Shoot us an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can just leave us a comment on our YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined by Dr. Mary Hirschfeld. Dr. Hirschfeld is Associate Professor of Economics and Theology in the Department of Humanities at Villanova University. She has taught at Villanova since 2011, where she regularly teaches the Humanities Gateways Society and God and Honors Seminars. She completed her PhD in Economics at Harvard University and a PhD in Moral Theology from the University of Notre Dame. Her research is on the boundary between economics and theology, culminating in her 2018 book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, available from Harvard University Press. Dr. Hirschfeld, what a blessing to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on The Bridge Builder. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Aquinas seems to have continuing relevance. Why should people read a medieval theologian on economic and social matters that are phenomenon happening today? The reason you should read Aquinas is because he has a deeper, richer take on what human happiness consists in than the modern idea that underlies economics. And so he provides us a way of thinking about economic life as ordered to actual human flourishing, whereas the economic models, they describe what people are trying to do, but it's just not a good path towards happiness. So it actively diverts us away from flourishing. Now, thinking about economics as a science, uh, we talk about it today as something with its own laws that are immune from ethical analysis. Why is modern economic science at best incomplete or at worst something that might even do more harm than good? Because it's not possible to talk about human behavior without having an ethical component. And that means that economists de facto have one, even though they say they don't. So a whole chapter of my book is devoted to showing that the economic analysis is rooted on assumptions about human happiness, human flourishing, and so on. And, and, and it, just, it, it just infests all of their language. It's inflected all the way through everything they have to say. So they just assume that efficiency is good or maximization is good, these sorts of things. And those are actually strong ethical claims, and they need to be defended as such. So since they already have an ethics, they should be willing to talk to people who have a different ethics and go back and forth. 
What is the vision of the human person or the assumptions about the person that modern economic science makes? And we've heard of this term, term homo economicus, economic man, but, but what are the anthropological assumptions that modern economics imputes into its analysis? Okay, so I'm going to, it's a two-part answer. So part one is a lot of people have misconceptions about what economists mean by homo economicus. So they do not think that humans just try to get as much money as possible, or they're just mm-hmm. not always pursuing their own self-interest. Homo economicus properly understood has a well-defined set of desires, and these might be selfish desires, but they also could be altruistic desires. And all they're trying to do is to use their limited resources, their money and time, to get to satisfy those desires as well as possible. So that's not, it's, it's, the caricature is, is, is often misleads people about what's wrong with economics. The problem with homo economicus is that homo economicus, A, thinks that they have well-defined preferences, desires, but a huge part of human life is figuring out what is actually good to want. So they divert our attention from think, you know, cultivating, our, cultivating our desires, cultivating our souls to want what's really worthy of desire. And the second one is they think that we all want as much as we can get. So that might be a millionaire trying to get as many yachts as possible, but it could also be Mother Teresa trying to get as many beds for sick people as possible. We're finite. And because we're finite, we need to realize that our desires are limited. You can't fix the whole world and you can't own all the yachts in the world. And you shouldn't want to because you're a single person. And if you get that, then you would realize that your desire for material things should be in service of the concrete goals that you have. And so they should be satiable. So you should be able to say, at some point, I have enough. And that's the critical difference, because in the modern, in the economic view, you can never have enough. How might economic science look differently if we started from Catholic anthropology or Catholic social teaching, or even going back to the book of Genesis and thinking about human beings is in relationship. Uh, The foundational social unit is the family. Our job is to be stewards of the gifts of God's creation. How might building on those principles or foundations lead to a different form of economic science? On one level, it wouldn't be a radical change. Economics is, to the extent that it is descriptive, people often do behave the way homo economicus is described. And so they can you know, tell us about the consequences of that behavior. So that's, that's a good thing. What they would need to change, though, is their idea about how to evaluate that behavior and how to think about policy or also just the way we talk about our economic lives so as to try to promote genuine human flourishing. The way economics is taught, it invites people to think that more is better. And once everybody thinks that they're chasing after as much as they can get, it generates a lot of the economic problems people worry about, economic injustice, economic instability, things like that. So they feed into their own problems. So it's fascinating. And, you know, just thinking about defining our terms, I mean, so oftentimes these conversations about economics, economic policy, they're so confused because we're speaking past each other mm-hmm. um, in terms of our terminology. So you're either for free markets or against free market. I mean, what do we mean when we say a market? I mean, are there any such things as real authentic markets like people envision their head besides the farmer's market? I mean, that seems to be about as close as you can get to an authentic market. But is our modern economy built on, really built on markets? What what do we mean when we say markets? What you mean when you say markets, and we really are built on markets, is just um, exchanging, exchanging goods and services with one another. And we do that in, in a myriad different ways. Every time you click on the button with Amazon, you're engaging in a market. Every time you get out of the gas station, you get some gas, you're engaging with the market because you're buying something, you're selling something. 
if we could get away from all the cultural baggage that goes with it, markets are, are, are actually very fitting with the Catholic vision of the human person because it's mostly about, you know, I have something of value, you have something of value, and we just decide to exchange it because it would make us better off. And it allows us to be more agents in our own life. So the free market aspect of it is good to that extent that it recognizes the value of our human agency. And also the way markets work, the way price system works is it coordinates our behavior. It coordinates our billions and billions of choices that we make into generally socially good outcomes. Um, we're fantastically much more wealthy than we were 300 years ago. And that's because of the spread of markets. But then because we are all polarized, as you said, it's either you love the market or you hate the market. Markets have their limitations. They're subject to abuses, especially if you're in a culture where, where we just assume, presume that more money is better and people are trying to pursue that without limits. So you get unethical practices. And like I said, you get instabilities and things like that. It would be good to cultivate a culture that remembers that our truest desires are not about things. Our truest desires are about our relationships with one another, the communities we build. And in a community that knows that, then the market can serve those higher ends in a good way. The problem is, is we've disassociated them. So we tend to be more atomized. We tend to think of ourselves as just individuals or individual families. And that leads to problems and also just a loss of deterioration of human flourishing. When we think about markets, we often think of them, as you described, as places of exchange, as a place more than a set of relationships. How might thinking about markets in terms of relationships, both right relationships and wrong relationships rooted in particular goods. I mean, we commodify everything today, human relationships, we commodify, even we have human trafficking, drug trade, all sorts of things, everything's commodified. So it might change our thinking if we started thinking in terms of relationships instead of markets as places. I mean, markets is a kind of relationship that can be dehumanizing. It doesn't have to be, but it very often is. So if I go to the grocery store, for example, I want to get a gallon of milk. The way the market works is all I see is a gallon of milk and the price tag associated with it. I do not see the farmer who got up at three o'clock in the morning to milk the cows. I don't see all the people who did everything in between getting that to where I am. And so I don't see it as what it really is. Because what it really is, is somebody or many somebodies did a lot of work on my behalf so I could have some milk on my cereal this morning. And so I forget the relational aspect to it. So the market blinds us to actually how interdependent we are, how interconnected we are. And it leads us to think of our work in ways that are distorting. So let's say I was a baker. If I'm a baker, the way I should think about my relationships with my customers is I want to give them good bread because I, you know, that's what I do and good bread is good. But instead, I might think I want to make as much money as I can. So what's the best way for me to, you know, advance my market share or all these other things? And I'm, I may still think about my customers, but instrumentally in terms of how they can feed my bottom line rather than as an exchange. I offer you bread because you're my neighbor, and then you offer me something in return. So yeah, the market just makes it harder for us to see how related we are. And then as you say, it's metastasizing. So we start looking at our interpersonal relationships through a market lens. I often teach Gary Becker, the Nobel laureate, and, and he wanted to extend the market metaphor to all aspects of life. And what's scary mm -hmm. about him, of course, is it's fairly accurate because we really have extended the market metaphor. So he thinks about things like, you know, the market for, you know, the marriage market where you go on the marriage market and, you know, he thinks things like love and all the warm and fuzzies are in his equations, but you're basically going out and shopping for a spouse who meets certain desires so that you can maximize your happy, you know, your utility, as you'd say it. And then he goes on to say, and then if it didn't work out, maybe you bought a lemon, you know, then you just kick it out and re-optimize and, and go back on the market and try again. And, and you can see how dehumanizing all of that is. 
But strangely, though, a bit of truth in the sense that women want men who are economically viable and marriage rates are declining, perhaps precisely because of the decline in marriageable men with long-term economic prospects. So it's, it's, rel- it's sort of dehumanizing on one level, but at the same time, economics is everywhere and still has something you know, to tell us about some of these relationships at the end of the day. No, exactly. I mean, a lot of what he predicts or what he, you know, he can explain a lot of behavior using this model. And I think the reason it works is exactly because we are, I think we're taking the economic way of thinking and putting it into all these other aspects of our lives, but it's distorting the goods. Because if I'm viewing marriage as a market where if I made a bad choice, I could just swap out and try again and try to get a better outcome. Well, you can see that now we've got the divorce culture and that in Mm -hmm. turn, I think undermines lots of other things. So I, you know, I, I often talk about the value of the marriage where you're in it for, for better or for worse, right? And, and the good that comes out of planting in something and, and growing the human good out of that. But it's a very different way of thinking than the culture has. And, and it's that that I think is most troublesome about economics because that metaphor is just everywhere and it really is distorting a lot of our understanding about life. Yeah, all of our relationships are contracts and when they no longer benefit the parties involved, we break the contract. Exactly. Um, it's really interesting. You know, turning to, again, economics is everywhere. Much in the discussion today are supply chains and supply chain management is a big thing. And you really addressed some of this question already in the sense that we don't know the person who milks the cow. We don't know the person who produced our goods. Do we need to rethink free trade and bring things back to a human scale? Is that what you're recommending and toward a more humane economy, or is that not one of the prescriptions that you would offer? I tentatively suggest we should think about it. And the reason I hesitate is because the extent, you know, having gone to a more global economy really has lifted a lot of people out of poverty. It really Mm -hmm. has generated a lot of prosperity. But as we're finding out now, part of the impetus towards more efficiency and more profit maximization has made us very vulnerable to disruptions, which is is problematic. And, And the scale is so large that it really is that much harder to remember that the people who are supplying us with the goods and services that we're buying are people. You know, I think Adam Smith is thinking about sort of a small town, small business, commercial society. And there's just no doubt that's where my heart is. I I feel like that would be more human. On the other hand, if we were to move in that direction, and and I think you can move in that direction incrementally. You don't have, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can try to move back towards getting more close-knit communities while still retaining a little bit of this other world. But there's some people who are all in on it, like buy, do everything local. And, 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 and the downside of that is just, you're going to be poorer because part of our prosperity is being able to trade with lots of people who have different skills and, and, and sets than we do. And when you shrink in, you lose that. And it also makes you more vulnerable. So if there's not a lot of trade and then your corner of the world has a big famine, right? A bad, you know, drought or whatever. It's just good to be able to import food from other places, right? But I do think you want to have both. And what worries me is we're slipping into a world where everything is just in the language of the global economy. And, and that's part of our problem. We're speaking with Dr. Mary Hirschfeld. She is professor of economics and theology at Villanova University and author of the book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a More Humane Economy. Dr. Hirschfeld, let's, let's start with the building blocks that St. Thomas gives us uh, for a humane economy. And then we'll move into maybe some more policy prescriptions or maybe both macro and micro changes that we need to make. But what are the, what are the foundations of a humane economy, according to St. Thomas, at least the way you describe them in your book? So I'm going to try to do this really briefly. Number one, get in right relationship with wealth, 
right? So the right relationship with wealth is not thinking, how can I make as much money as possible? And then what do I do with it? It's rather thinking, what kind of a life do I want to lead? And therefore, what kind of goods do I need to have in order to serve that life? And then how do I make that living? Um, so it just inverts our priorities. So that you're always focusing on what's important. So that's step one. And really that drives everything. So once mm -hmm. you start thinking that way, when you go out to work, you're going to see work as more than just a paycheck. Work is how do I exercise my talents? How do I support the community through the work I do? How do I, you know, it just invites you to a more relational aspect with things. And, and it still has plenty of room for, for the market. So if I'm, say, a good firm, you know, going to conduct a good business as a firm, say I'm going to be a carpenter, my first priority is to make good cabinets for my neighbors. And then the price signals can just tell me about, you know, maybe my neighbors value a different kind of car, you know, cabinet over another one so I can shift my production around. If there's a hurricane somewhere in, say, South Florida and wood prices go way up, that's a signal to me that maybe for a while I want to use different materials for my cabinets because the wood is needed elsewhere. So the market serves in helping me to allocate, you know, to do my work in a way that really serves the community best. But the main thing is I would never, ever look at my work as primarily about how to make as much money as possible. It would be primarily about, you know, how do I serve the community through my cabinets? How do I, you know, provide a good space for my worker, you know, my employees to work, things like that. If we want to translate that into a pop culture speak, we might say that economic life and proper economic life means we have to start with why. Why do we do things? Why are we pursuing certain goods? You know, what's the point of it all? Yeah, and it goes back to that idea. If we think we already know what we want, we never get to the question of why. And, and, and asking why, I think, gives us just a lot of space to take all of our economic wealth and just deploy it much better. So you asked me about policy prescriptions, and here I'm kind of neutral. So I, I do think markets are very good. I don't think that they're the absolute ultimate good. So there's room for the state to come in and, and support the market in doing what it's doing and to try to curb its excesses. And in a culture where very few people understand that the most important thing to ask about economics is why am I doing this? Some laws can act as, as, as training wheels, right? So you might want to redistribute wealth in order to just kind of say, just as a signal to the community to try to help cultivate these other habits of thought. But I would want to do it gently. I'm generally, I, I'm center right. I, I like markets. I, I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't make them an idol, but I-, I, I They're powerful I, mechanisms of wealth creation. The powerful mechanism of wealth creation, but also a pretty healthy suspicion of um, ill-considered state intervention. So I think there's a tendency to want to do good through state intervention, and, and the intentions are always good. But I think people overestimate how much we can do through our policies, and there's a lot of unintended harm through them, or at least more often than people sometimes think. And, I, and this also fits in with the Catholic idea of subsidiarity, that whenever possible, you want agency to be at the, at, you know, as close to the individual, the family, or the community as possible. That doesn't mean you never have state intervention. It just means the burden of proof is on, in this instance, would it, you know, is it necessary? Is there a place for antitrust? Is, some, is antitrust something, you know, as an intervention uh, in the market, something we need to look at to make markets perhaps work better? Or what are your thoughts on economic consolidation and markets tending toward monopoly? I'm very much with Chesterton. I, 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 like I said, the, the market system that I am in favor of is a small scale system. So big corporations are as much of a problem as big government. And what's very frightening right now is that they, they're tending to, their interests are, are harmonizing and they're supporting each other. Um, is antitrust the right answer? I, I do not do antitrust, so I don't know the ins and outs of that. The impulse behind antitrust strikes me as right. And, and, you know, the problem with Amazon and with the big tech companies and all this isn't necessarily that they're 
charging too high prices for their services or things like that. It's the consolidation of power that's frightening. But I, it's not my area of expertise, so I don't know what would be involved in trying to go to do legislation in that direction. And as always, I would want to say, while I think the impulse is exactly right, be wary of our tendency to overestimate our ability to fix things. So I leave that to the people who are expert in that to try to figure that out. What I want to add, though, is that we're all complicit in this. And I, first among them, I shop on Amazon all the time. But I think we all need to try to figure out ways, just little ways in our lives, we can withdraw our support for the system. And it's very hard to do. But cultural shifts do matter. And where we put our priorities does matter. And I think everybody should try to be mindful of that. When possible, shop local, things like, things like that. If we're talking about in this month in which we observe World Day of the Poor, um, the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, and if we're going to build a more humane economy, presumably that means we uphold human dignity and, and uh, make sure that people have a, at least a very basic standard of living, but also we help them uh, to get jobs. And work is an important dimension of both human flourishing and economic life. So what are, what are some prescriptions that either you or St. Thomas uh, in your book might prescribe for lifting up the poor and help them build wealth and have dignified work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think your question already contains the answer to the question. If I'm in right relationship with wealth, then I'm going to be able to identify what's a surplus to me. So maybe my economic business is bringing in more than I need to meet my needs. That is due to others, right? That's, it's just, it's money I have available to help people who are in material need. And we should always stand willing to give material assistance to people who need material assistance. We in America are a lot richer than we think we are. So there's a lot more room for us to do a lot more of that sort of thing. And that's what Aquinas really does focus on. But I would use a Thomistic lens. This isn't Thomas himself, but it's me working through his apparatus. It's very important to the human to be part of the community and to be a contributing part of the community, which means having a job really is part of human dignity. Whenever we raise the issue of the poor, I always hesitate because we always talk about the poor as others. And do you hear that othering that's going on? I don't mm -hmm. have any language that avoids it. But in our lives, we need to try to avoid that othering. So there's mm -hmm. a tendency to think, how can I help the poor? Well, that's good. I mean, I need to do that. But how can I view them as a person with whom I can be in relationship who has something for me, right? Mm -hmm. So that there can be exchange so that they have dignity. Soup kitchens are good. Is there a way to make it more personal? To try to bring people into community to make sure they have standing. There's a sociological aspect to poverty that I think we need to pay a lot more attention to. And Adam Smith, of all people, is very good on this. The big ill of being poor is partly not having enough food on the table or things like that. But it's the way you become socially invisible. And Pope, Pope Francis talks about this too, the marginalization, the exclusion. You do not see the janitor. You do not see the homeless person on the street. You just, your eyes avert from them. And instead your eyes are drawn towards the person who clearly has social standing, usually identified by markers of economic wealth. We just need to be way more mindful of seeing the people around us, no matter what their walk of life is, as a person with whom I can have a relationship and from whom I you know, would gain from having that relationship because every person has a gift to offer everybody else. Yeah, economic life in the Catholic world, at least from that frame of reference, it's built, the logic of the gift is built in there. Everyone has gifts to share a community, really, that means a sharing of gifts, right? That's the, if you go back to the etymological understanding of that term, uh, a communis, a sharing of gifts. 
you know, is the principle of participation here an important one? It's an important principle of social life. And it's an important principle of, certainly we say ecclesial life, which is why we're talking about synods um, and, you know, economic life too. Is, is that something that Aquinas prescribes as a component of a humane economy is fostering greater economic participation? Yeah, I mean, again, he doesn't address it that much, in part because he lived in a world where they have, you know, smaller, thicker communities and mm-hmm. come up as, as quickly. But yes, everybody needs to participate. And the, the more you can participate in the, in, in the society around you, in the culture around you, in the community around you, we're just, by essence, we're social animals, we're social creatures. And so to fulfill our potential, participation in that life is, is really important. If you're looking at a community that's blighted by poverty, one thing to do would be to go in and talk, right? Just to try to build bridges across and hear from them, right? What assistance they need, what, what can, you know, and things like that. Just giving people a chance to participate in their own lifting up would be huge. And giving them a chance to come back to the greater community is it's just what I think our, all of our poverty programs should all be designed towards building those bridges to bringing, bringing those communal ties back. Because that's how you give authentic human flourishing. Listeners of this show will know that I'm overly fixated on the root word of economics, the oikos in Greek, the household, uh, ecology, interconnectedness, as Pope Pope Francis says. What if we both thought about the microeconomics, root root those things, mediums of exchange and measures of communitive justice in the family and based our small-scale economic life around the household or the family, but also then thought about the macro economy in terms of a household interconnectedness, focusing on the needs of the weakest and most vulnerable, uh, for example, focusing on needs as opposed to wants and prioritizing those things rightly is, is thinking about economics in terms of the household, both the micro and macro level. Could that be an important conceptual shift in how we think about these things? Yes. The first thing that comes to mind is the objection to that. So I agree with that. The objection is I can't think of 330 million Americans as a family the same way I can, as I can think of my family because I know my family and I do not know 330 million Americans. So to try to uh, take the model of the household apply to everybody is to forget that an essential part of the household is that interpersonal connection and it simply is not possible on a mac- macro scale. That said, I should be able to imaginatively realize that my neighbors in this larger community are human persons who have their, you know, I should be able to think of them in those terms. And that should be able to inflect the way I, I, I interact with them. We do want to remember our finitude. And part of the finitude is I cannot know every human person on the planet the same way I can know my brother. So that's a yes, but a slight hesitation. We, we do need to remember that there's different scales of sociality. And, and, and the main thing would be is like when you are on that larger scale doing national policies and things like that, just remember that at the end of the day, it has to devolve back to those pers- interpersonal relationships. So, and it takes an imaginative effort. You know, the person who's hungry in Mozambique, I can't love him the way I love my brother, but I should nonetheless treat him as though he were my brother to the extent possible. Wonderful. This has been a really engaging conversation. We're very grateful for your work, building bridges between economics and theology, something that needs to happen, it seems, more and more, combining the language of ethics and economic science. Dr. Hirschfeld, do you have a page or someplace where people can go to find out more about your work? 
If you Google my name, a fair amount of stuff would come up. And then I do have the book from Harvard University Press, which is Aquinas in the Market, which you mentioned at the top. Um, Outstanding. Aquinas in the Market Toward a More Humane Economy. Dr. Mary Hirschfeld, thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Blessings on your work. And we'll be back in a moment with this week's action item. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Now it's time to jump into this week's action item. Kit, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, well, it's hard to believe, but it's already Advent starting on Sunday, November 28th. As we all know, it's a season to prepare for the coming of Christ, but it's really also a prime opportunity to bring our faith into the public square. You know, Advent or Advenire, I hope I'm saying that right in Latin, means to come to. We're coming to Christ, but why not also take it as an opportunity to encourage others to come to Mass with you? You could reach out to some of your elected officials, invite them to come to maybe your Christmas concert at your parish or a parish festival that might be happening this time of year. It's an opportunity for us to build those bridges at a time of year when people are really looking for relationships and looking for joyful opportunities. That's all we have time for this week. Remember, if you ever want to catch any of our extended conversations, make sure to check us out on YouTube. We don't always have time for everything in a half-hour radio program. And so just search for Minnesota Catholic Conference on YouTube. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Make sure when you're on our YouTube channel to click subscribe, and you'll always be notified of the latest episodes. Leave us a comment or send us an email, show at mncatholic.org, or go to our website for all our past episodes, mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference and for Kit Sapiniak. Thanks so much for listening. Have a blessed day.